So it's been, what, like a month since we recorded an episode? Yeah, because time is meaningless. I guess that's like the theme of this, if it's even a season. It definitely is. It's been the theme of the last two years, for sure. Yeah. And I guess the general theme of this podcast is Matt and Melissa complain about how busy we are. <laughs> and how much of a burden it is to like find time to record the podcast at regular intervals. So we've had a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, right after we recorded the last episode, I think, is that when you had the, uh, what's her name, Stephanie Farr come over? <laughs> From the Inquirer? Yeah, so actually, I didn't mention this in the last episode, even though it happened on the same day before the podcast uh, recording. Stephanie Farr from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who is a features writer at the Inquirer and runs a series called We the People, where she profiles... uh, quirky Philadelphians. <laughs> She's actually profiled Elaine Peden, who we've talked about on this podcast before, the Penn lady who is really into William Penn and Hannah Callow Hill. She got in touch with me because of the viral tweet that I mentioned <laughs> <laughs> and asked if she could profile me for We the People. Uh, so the same day as the podcast was recorded, earlier that day, we had a really long phone interview. I mean, it went for a really long time, which was amazing. Such a great conversation. And then, like, the next day... It's funny, you, you can't see this. Melissa's gesturing at me as though I, I remember. I was working all day, uh, which, for those of you keeping track at home... Melissa has far outpaced me on local press appearances. I'm, I guess I'm winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but the photographer and uh, Stephanie came over. Yeah, and uh, took a bunch of photos of everything from the remains of our privy dig to the archaeology that we have going on in our kitchen right now and uh, my workspace, uh, including my assistant, Dina, who got in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I had a photo featured in the print version. That's right. Although I have to say my favorite aspect, well, honestly, the writing is fantastic and hopefully you've already seen the article because you're following us on social media but this opening uh, when melissa dunphy and her husband bought a shuttered magic theater in old city they thought the fart powder the gunpowder the tin of pot and a stack of risque adult polaroids they discovered in the wall would be the strangest things they'd find like (laughs) fantastic i love it um, and they, they opened up yeah. uh, with Mikey's wonderful photo of us in the privy. I also really enjoyed the headlines. <laughs> so in the print version, what is it? Flush with artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the online version, they changed the headline to say, this composer became an amateur privy diving archaeologist after buying a magic theater in Old City. I guess they needed something a little more... Uh, SEO friendly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I'm still old fashioned, and maybe this comes from working at a newspaper for a little bit, which I never shut up about. Um, I went to go find a print copy when it came out, and it was really sad. I went to multiple delis and just places where you would expect to be a newspaper, and you could see the shelf where the newspapers used to be. But it wasn't until I went to uh, the awful gas station at Spring Garden and uh, Delaware Ave. We have the shadiest gas station near us. It's just like, I 
I oh. tell people not to go there. Like, I will drive five miles out of my way to avoid my local gas station. Usually, the only time I go down there is when I need to get paper copies of the Enquirer because my friend is in it or I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I grabbed the four copies they had, um, and the, the kid at the counter was confused. He wasn't sure what was going on. Like, Wait, I handed d- him the paper. That someone was buying newspapers? And he had to ask somebody else what to do with these things. <laughs> And like, what is this thing that you found in our store? <laughs> and the generational age gap never felt stronger than, than that day. What is this? Is this like printing out the internet? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we did get four copies. And thankfully, uh, you, you had also put a call out in social media. Yeah, and- I got some more copies of it so that we can send it to our older friends and relatives. <laughs> it's It's a physical object, which is kind of what this whole podcast is about that's true i would put them in the privy but i don't think they'd last no (laughs) (laughs) so yeah everyone go check out that article if you google me and stephanie far um it's far f-a-r-r with two r's i can't i don't say r's so uh, in american it doesn't make any sense (laughs) can you hear our cat scratching in the litter right now it's this constant background noise and it's ruby (laughs) she's been burying a poo for like 35 seconds, 40 I mean, seconds. She's she's filling in the gap left by Moonlight, I guess. Oh, it's, my God. It's only Wait, we haven't even gotten to that yet. That's this episode. <laughs> okay. So, where we left off was where? Uh, we had dug everything up, but it was... Oh, speaking of Doug, I forgot to mention. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Doug. Our friend, our friend and Bughouse fan Doug Shadel came and visited with us. Uh, last week and came and stayed in our Airbnb. By the way, if you would like to stay in our Airbnb, you can go to airbnb.thehanna.org and make a booking. If you want a weekend, you have to book like three months in advance. It sells out really fast. But yeah, so Doug came and stayed with us, which was really amazing. Hi, Doug. (laughs) Yeah, it was really nice to hang out. It was a great excuse to go eat at restaurants <laughs> we've been <laughs> the like, first time in ages yeah we've been cooped up in here we've been sort of extra careful i think about the pandemic but also just uh, hearing what doug's been up to and, and sharing stories he also likes quirky old things uh, yes. the way that we do and really just a, a pleasure to have a friend hanging out for multiple days yeah yeah, yeah. and someone who's interested in all of our weird exploits and the crazy things that we find under the ground. Uh, speaking of uh, crazy things that we found under the ground, where, where did we end up? Where yes, did we, li- we leave off? We where? dug. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> what, have I, what have I done? <laughs> uh, we, we had dug the entire privy and we had a bunch of uh, unsorted, dirty artifacts and ready we were, for the cleaning. Right. And we were getting friends to help us clean them up. And I remember when we started to dig out this privy, I kind of made a wish, you know, put out my desires into the universe to use bullshit fucking Oprah language, I guess. I'm like, (laughs) what would I most like to find in this privy? Like, what would be be the coolest thing that I would love to find in this privy? And I was like, you know what I'd love? I'd love to find some pottery with a fucking date on it <laughs> because because there's that's a whole category of pottery is like pottery where the person who made it has actually put the date that they made it on the pottery 
Yeah, this has been something I've been a nut about in general is when you create things, like date them. Yes. Give it some context of what you create. Uh, Going to blog entries and and reading stories and seeing no date on when the thing was published. Oh, it's maddening. Drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a great thing for like all artists out there, no matter what medium you're working in, put a fucking date on Sign and date your work. Yes. Please do that. For the sake of the future, it's really helpful. (laughs) And then I was also like, you know what else I would love to see? I would love to see things that have people and animals on them. Like patterns are great. Patterns are great. I want to see people and animals, you know, call me a traditionalist, but figurative art is like (laughs) kind of my jam, I guess, when it comes to pottery that I found under the ground. And it turns out with all of the things that we dug. Oh, wait, wait. Also, I was like, wouldn't it be great to find some more Bonin and Morris? Spoilers. Okay, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, this is a a bit of a run-through of a list of things that we found. The coolest stuff. The coolest stuff. Take a seat. You're in the bog house. first artifact I'm going to talk about is actually cool enough that we're going to feature it in its own episode. But to give you a little taste, because we're, we're so excited about it, we're going to talk a little bit about it here. It actually first came up while Lewis was down in the pit. Lewis is Michael the Privy Digger and his wife Marita's, uh, I think, 15-year-old son at the time that we were digging the Privy. Well, again, what is time? Time yeah. is meaningless. A son. <laughs> <laughs> A son who was younger than us in this this linear timeline in which we exist. And who has exponentially more privy digging experience than us. He went down into the privy uh, to give you a break. And when he was down there, we hear him call up. Hey, Dad, check this out. And he hands up a piece of pottery and he goes, it's two birds fucking. <laughs> and we're, we're like, hearing this, like... I mean, maybe, you know, he's seeing something in the clouds, right? No, sure enough, this piece of pottery comes up, this sherd comes up, and it is clearly two an, birds fucking. It's an image on, <laughs> on a sort of white piece of Delftware, and the picture is drawn in shades of blue and purple. And yeah, it's two birds fucking on a river. They kind of look like chickens or pheasants yeah. or... Uh, or I don't know, like peacocks or something like that, something in that sort of family. And the male is, the male cock is clearly mounting the female hen. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned, actually, my Philadelphia Inquirer interview when I was talking about this bull, did I, did it get into print or did Stephanie just talk about it after on Twitter? I was like, this makes no sense because chickens or peacocks or pheasants <laughs> don't they don't live on the river they don't they're not water birds they don't live on rivers so why are these two birds fucking in a river anyway <laughs> so that is extra fun we're going to go into great detail about that later yeah well just to give like an overview of this bowl to whet your appetite so to speak as the months progressed when we were processing mm-hmm, the finds mm-hmm. we found more and more and more of the two birds fucking bowl and it turned out it was even more exciting than just two birds fucking on the outside because right in the middle of the bowl on the inside there was well there there's a little face there's a, a face. little face a person a person kind of <laughs> 
kind of Julius Caesar looking dude. Right. He's got the laurel wreath around his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's it, got, it's like blush on his cheek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a bust, like a three quarter or profile bust of a Julius Caesar looking dude. Very inspired by the classics. I remember the day when we put the face together because the face was kind of broken into a couple of pieces and it took putting a few pieces together before we realized it was a face. Right. And I can just, I remember the excitement. Like I was, (laughs) I lost my mind. I was like, oh my God, it's a face. I can't believe it's a face. And then as we continued to clean and sort, uh, letters started coming up. Right. A thing to note about the bottom of this bowl is that the, it was potted really thin so it was broken into so many pieces, <laughs> like like I would say an eighth of an inch thin. And some of the pieces were smaller than a fingernail. So it was painstaking to put this pot together. So what did the letters say? D.W. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you think of like, what's that show, Arthur? Oh, I, I was, this is going to date me. I was thinking Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Duck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, the only reason I know Arthur is because I worked at a PBS station right. and I once had to don a DW mascot costume for work at the Whitaker Center in Harrisburg and be mobbed by children. And it was the worst <laughs> job in the world because the DW costume does not have a panel that you can look through. So you're completely blind inside the costume. You have to have a handler drag you around every- everywhere because you, you cannot see anything. Anyway, sorry. That's why I think DW from Arthur. But we struggled at first to find information about this bowl because DW doesn't tell you a lot. <laughs> like, right. Wait, what is DW? But amazingly... If you go searching for, I mean, synonyms for the phrase two birds fucking. Yeah, I think I searched cock mounting hen or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should see the ads she gets now. <laughs> and doffed bowl... And I came up with a page on the British Museum website. It was uh, one of their artifacts that is in the British Museum. And I pulled up the page and I just about died because it was clearly the same themed bowl. And the British Museum pointed me at, uh, in the description, they have really good descriptions, thankfully, on the British Museum captions, and pointed me at a bowl in Colonial Williamsburg, which was similar. And when I pulled that one up, it had the same birds on the outside. Yeah. And we're not going to give away what all of that means yet. I mean, you can probably, you can go and replicate my (laughs) research right now if you're, like, desperate for spoilers, but because we're planning a whole episode about this bowl in the future. We'll get to that. But while we're on the topic of bowls, another one that came up that actually, I think the whole bottom came out pretty clean for this one. Yes, like the whole base of it. One bowl more and then. <laughs> this this is uh, at the bottom of a punch bowl. You know, it's, you know, one and done, right? Well, let's, let's just have one more. <laughs> right. Um, it's a drinking slogan mm-hmm. on the inside of the punch bowl, which carries on the same. So again, this is a piece of Delftware. And this is hearkening back, in my mind, to one of the very first sherds we ever found, Matt found, actually, way back in, like, episode 
two or three or whenever it was. Yeah. Right, which really kind of ignited the whole thing. It was already interesting, but once we found the writing on this shirt that said navigation, mm-hmm. that's what transported us back to like, oh, this is 18th century. Right, this is special. And it's very similar to that in that this is a party bowl. It's right. for celebrating. Right. Yeah. One bowl more and then. There's a whole, like, this is a, a very common theme in the late 1700s um, lots of bowls out there that have this phrase on it right um, and it's it's a bit of a, a Rob Hunter special um, <laughs> but he's definitely pointed us in this direction towards these drinking bowls that yeah. are like one bowl more and then speaking of Delftware one of the things that I hate about Delftware is it really sucks to put together afterward it's so crumbly it's so fragile it's hard to glue because the clay inside the glaze is really sort of powdery mm-hmm. and sometimes the glue doesn't stick very well. It chips so easily. The glaze chips really, really easily. So it's hard to sort of make it line up and look good. But I also really love Delftware because it always has so much information. It, there's so <laughs> It's the kind of pottery that they most were most likely to put really cool figurative illustration or decoration on or people's faces or dates or writing. So that's why Delftware is really, really exciting. Um, And we have one more piece of Delftware, which is a super duper highlight of that dig. Yeah, this was, again, immediately obvious when we pulled it out that this was something special. We found this little spout and on the spout is a face. (laughs) (laughs) And the spout, when we, we cleaned everything and put it all together... Uh, was part of a little creamer, mm-hmm. uh, a little Delftware creamer, and it's got insects, it's got flowers, and uh, the little bit where your your cream pours out of is this creepy little face. Yeah. We've posted pictures of this already on our Instagram, so you can go back through our Instagram posts and find it. But it reminds me a little bit of like a Toby jug or something mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like the, the jug itself figuratively becomes... A person or features of a person, but it's just a tiny little cremo. And it also has a pretty decorative mark on the bottom. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, like a maker's mark. It looks like it says AI, like <laughs> like the Art Institutes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the Art Institutes. <laughs> Uh, but we haven't found out what this means. We may never find out. Right. Maker's marks on Delft are tricky. Like, it's it, hard to it could trace mean, them. You know, it could just be tied to who is getting paid for making that thing mm-hmm. within the pottery itself and not actually something you can track back to the pottery. Right. It might be the painter. Right. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Yeah. Somehow. I, I think it's Dutch. I think it's Dutch. Uh, Delftware, it's like the word Delft comes from a city in the Netherlands where there was a lot of production of this type of pottery. But actually, the official term for it is tin-glazed earthenware because the glaze is made out of a tin compound. And they were making it not only in the Netherlands, but also in England, in you know different parts of England, in Liverpool, in France. And then, you know, types of tin-glazed earthenware down as far as, you know, Portugal and Spain and Italy and all of these kinds of places. So, yeah, there was argument about where this little crema could come from. But I don't know why. I don't know shit about this. And still (laughs) in my heart, I'm like, I think it's Dutch. (laughs) And I'm just... 
storking out my butt. Like I really don't. We, yeah, we've we've had suggestions that it comes from several different places, and it really boils down to finding a copy that's been passed down through antiquity, right? That has provenance. And I kind of want to take it to the Netherlands when we visit the Netherlands for the first time, fingers crossed, later this year, and like just take it to the Rijksmuseum and say, hello, show me your Delft expert. Right. Is this Dutch? (laughs) So an interesting thing about this piece in particular is a lot of the Delft that's been sitting in the muck for centuries has lost its sheen. It's been stained... The actual glaze doesn't seem glossy anymore, but there are actually a couple of... Well, I have a theory about that, Yeah, which I I haven't found a lot of research on this topic. I think I need to really dig into exactly how Delftware is made, because in my cleaning up of this Delftware, what I've noticed is that there is the sort of opaque white surface of the glaze which is like a first layer and then they paint it in cobalt or manganese or whatever it is that's making the blue usually or purple Mm -hmm. colors and then it seems like there's some kind of clear glaze over the top and whatever they make that final layer with and i don't know if that layer is something that's applied to the delft or if that's something that in the kiln process gets cooked onto the surface of the of mm-hmm. the delft from chemical reaction or whatever but that final glossy surface of the delft in some cases gets penetrated with a stain that's in the privy mm-hmm. so some pieces of delft that come out of the privy look totally fine, look completely untouched Mm -hmm. and amazing, like as good as the day they were made. And other pieces come out looking... Brown and disgusting. Like you can't see any of the decoration because it's almost black. And I bring this up because on this particular creamer, there are a couple really shiny, glossy pieces. And we actually had a guest visit during the pandemic, Natalie Wright, who was with the Chipstone Foundation. Mm -hmm. And It was really fun watching her go through our collection because she's used to seeing things that were passed down through antiquity. Right. Actual, I don't know, treasures that have come from cabinets and collections. Right. And for her to see not just the sections that are broken apart because it was all still very much in pieces, but seeing the finishes in different states made me think about this in a way I hadn't thought about and she was thinking about them in a way that she hadn't thought about and for me that creamer really symbolized that because of all the different qualities of the different pieces that had shattered and spread throughout the privy. Yeah, I feel like it's very dependent upon what chemical the shirt of Delftware lands in. Like some Mm -hmm. of them might land in, I don't know, a big pile of piss. Something in the piss really messes up the glaze over the course of decades. Whereas if it lands in, like, lime, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's something, you know, or if it lands in a bit of ash as opposed Mm -hmm. to a wet pot which has a lot of iron oxide in it that helps to stain. You know, I'm not even sure what chemical is causing the stain, but I would love to know because that might help me with how to get the stain off as efficiently and sympathetically as possible. Right. Maybe in another episode we'll talk about your interesting bleaching techniques. Um, 
for another day. We, yeah. we still have so many things here. So I know you took a particular interest in the next item on the list here. Yeah, so I started pulling pieces of a redware pot out of the privy. And because I went to dish camp, you may remember in an earlier episode, I talked about going to this archaeology conference dish camp near Albany, New York, and uh, Meta Janowitz, who is this incredible archaeology expert, gave a talk at that conference about Dutch cookpots because she found a whole ton of them in what was once New Amsterdam in New York at the Five Points archaeological dig that happened there. And she's like one of the foremost experts in the world on Dutch and Dutch-American cookpots. And I watched her presentation and was really excited by all the things she was talking about. And so as soon as this pot came out, I was like, I know exactly what this is. (laughs) I can tell you exactly what this is. This is Dutch as fuck. Look at those (laughs) handles. That is a Dutch handle. I know because I went to this one lecture and that makes me a super duper expert (laughs) but what was cool about that part was that we did get almost all of it there's only a couple of tiny sherds missing which probably got crushed in the privy and Mm -hmm. you know we'll never actually find them and it it's so interesting and makes me really think about the people who made this cook pot and used this cook pot i think because it's so unique in the privy. We didn't find another one like it in this privy. There's some other Dutch stuff that we found around here. Yeah, but we'll but talk about that yeah. in, a, in another episode. <laughs> but one of the reasons that it sort of grabbed me was it made me think about when I first came to America and I uh, moved in with Matt in central Pennsylvania, one of the very first things that I went out to buy was a wok. I come from a Chinese family, a Chinese-Australian family, and we cook everything in a wok. I mean, my mom will cook, like, fucking spaghetti in a wok. Like, it's all in the wok at all times. And, you know, she had the same wok. I mean, she probably still has it. The same wok for 30, 40 years. And it's just the thing that you use, you know. It's like the all-purpose thing. I moved to America, and your family didn't own a wok. And I'm like... I cannot function without a wok. Like, how am I supposed to cook anything without a wok? Right. <laughs> so I went to, like, a Chinese grocery store and found a wok. And it's the same wok that I've had now for nearly 20 years. And uh, seeing this Dutch cookpot in the privy made me, I guess, know deep in my bones. Someone Dutch, like, fresh off the boat Dutch or at most first-generation Dutch, came here, lived around here... And something that they probably bought from an exporter, oh, sorry, an importer in Philadelphia somewhere was a piece of familiar cookware because they wanted to cook something that reminded them of home. And this is the piece of cookware that you need to make it. Or they brought it over with them. Entirely possible. But I sort of feel like this cook pot is so rude and cheap. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there was a big sort of Dutch pottery or Dutch import pottery, you know, around the area, that it might have been pretty easy to find one in New Amsterdam or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And this is probably, I'm going to call it confirmed by (laughs) the fact that the family next door where this privy was being used was the Van Horn family. Right. Which is a super Dutch name. (laughs) 
<laughs> now you know if you didn't. <laughs> Van Horn, it literally means from Horn. I can't say it because I can't speak Dutch, but it's a it's a town in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So very Dutch. And I did a little research on the Van Horns and it's like one generation removed where the parents are using like extremely Dutch first names and then it was anglicized after like one generation. So yeah. I think it might have been one of theirs. Yeah, definitely. I got pretty excited by some stuff at the very, very bottom of the privy uh, with all of the broken things that we have. It was really cool once we got under that clay cap that we talked about. In in my eyes, these little creamers and apothecary vials and like little, little tiny bits of glassware, like little tiny things in perfect shape just they were done using them they threw them out they went 19 feet down and because they were protected by this big chunk of clay and because they're so small and stout right it's like little things are actually less likely to break Mm -hmm. when you i guess throw them into a bunch of soft poop (laughs) (laughs) try it (laughs) next time next time you have a lot of soft poop to throw something in Try throwing a small bottle in as opposed to a large bottle and see which one breaks. (laughs) I bet you anything the large bottle would be more likely to break than the tiny little apothecary vial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked a little bit about drinking culture earlier, and it's clear we didn't have the very uh, Puritan, uh, non-partying Quaker types here because we found so many tankards. So much drinkware. So much. I mean, it's entirely possible that they weren't complete alcoholics. I'm just thinking of, like, the fact that... The well water was disgusting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically death to drink from the well (laughs) in Philadelphia for the first 150 years of, like, white settlement here. More than, you know, 200 years of white settlement. You had a pretty good chance of getting, like, dysentery or cholera or something from drinking the well water. And one of the ways to prevent this was by drinking, I think what they call it is small ale, basically like really low alcohol fermented right. ale. For as much as they drank, it wasn't like they were downing the really alcoholic like IPAs and things like that. <laughs> they it weren't was... drinking Golden Monkey. No. <laughs> it's more like kombucha. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, something in the process to make it so that it, it wasn't terrible disgusting water that that kills you yeah so what are our favorite tankards well there's the Vesterwald tankard that is so close to being complete yeah it's just missing the two most interesting parts <laughs> of the damn mug <laughs> we could see the shield where the gr for king george georgius rix I yeah guess. yeah is supposed to be uh there's like the little edge there and i like to joke that oh they smashed all the king george stuff that's not actually what happened even though we've sifted almost everything twice, we have not been able to find those missing pieces. Yeah. And there's also a big chunk missing where in other examples that are very similar to this, there's a number indicating sort of the size of the mug. And of course, the metal part that was there is not there. This Vestival tankard is the forerunner, I guess you could say, to what we might call a German Stein. Stein, Right. right? And often these steins had, and you still see them today, like if you go to tourist shops or, you know, Mm -hmm. they will have a silver or silver plated lid that goes on the top and sort of clips onto the handle and you can flip the lid up to drink your beer or whatever. 
so the handle of this has like a hole in it, which is where that lid would be attached, but there was no lid. Who knows? We never find any precious metal in the privy because rather than throwing it in the privy, they would Melt give it that down. to right, the yeah. metal workers to reuse. <laughs> it would be stupid and wasteful to just throw it into the privy. Right. We also found just a whole family of barrel-shaped tankards, which was kind of new to us. It was very new to us. Yeah. Most of the tankards that we found prior to this, I mean, I sound like, you know, oh, we've dug hundreds <laughs> of privies, you know, in the, like, two other privies that we dug in our block. All of the tankards are straight-sided, so look more like a, a big, tall mug. Right. I've got this this Easy Riders mug. <laughs> a plastic easy right like a mug. big they, they were giving these mugs out all throughout like the 80s and 90s all kinds of different things sure. were using these as promotional mugs like everywhere and it's a pretty standard looking beer mug sure but what we found and again this was at the bottom of the privy so sort of the oldest in context all were sort of you know bigger in the middle right so these rounder sided tankards with narrower openings and some of them are really big. There's one that I call the 18th century Big Gulp, which <laughs> is like almost the size of my head. It's you ridiculous. Know, it's really, really big. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in my fantasy world, I'm seeing somebody going through like alcoholic phases where they start out and they're like, oh, this is pretty good, but it's not enough. <laughs> and so they get a bigger mug and they keep. I mean, people can put down drinks. Yeah, this is the thing is like Debbie Miller, when I was having this discussion with her, was like, well, you know, this could also be like a sharing mug where you'd share it around the table. And I'm like, maybe. But also, I've seen people drink an astronomical fucking amount of beer. Right. I'm from Australia, where literally our, our prime minister in the 1980s, Bob Hawke, was the Guinness World Record holder. For the fastest drinker of a yard glass of beer. Our prime minister. Like, I feel like it was the reason he was elected. So, while these mugs look really big to us and seem like an astronomical amount of beer to put away, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just an idea. Yeah. Um, And so all of this was from the bottom underneath the clay cap, which I gave the spoiler away in the last episode, that the stuff under the clay cap kind of seemed to top out at about 1760. Yeah. And, you know, I've just done some preliminary research, but it would sort of seem to suggest, based on our privy finds, that barrel-shaped tankards were more common prior to 1760 as opposed to after, because all of the tankards we found above that clay cap tended to have straight sides. Yeah. What else did we find? Okay, I love bones. And really early on in the dig, actually, one of the coolest things to find that came out of the privy was a totally intact, massive horse jaw, complete with canines, which I didn't realize horses could have. It turns out all male horses have four canine teeth. Uh, on their upper and lower jaws, like two on each jaw. Most female horses don't. So this was probably a boy horse. And the canines only emerge after a horse is four to six years old. The average lifespan of a horse, I've learned so much about horses based on this jaw. (laughs) You see where this research takes you? It's amazing. The average lifespan of a horse is 25 to 30 years today, but it was probably worse back then because people were not 
horses couldn't drink beer. <laughs> Do horses get cholera or dysentery? I didn't go that deep in my research. <laughs> Well, they they lived really hard lives, that, right? Really right. terrible lives. They were certainly <laughs> seen as property or work tools um, rather than creatures. I mean, God, read up about the pit ponies and oh the mines God. in England. I it, went to exactly the same spot just now. Yeah, we've been watching documentaries and things like this, and maybe it was even like Antiques Roadshow. I think there was an episode of UK Antiques Roadshow that talked about this. And these ponies that just lived in darkness their entire lives, pulling carts up out of mines. Like, it's it's heartbreaking. It made me want to cry. I'm not even a horse girl. It made me really, really upset hearing about the stories. Anyway, all to say... Looking at this horse jaw, the teeth are really worn. The molars are really worn. And with the immersion of these canines as well, I think it's pretty fair to say that this horse was a very mature horse, possibly even an elderly horse that sort of had been worked to the moment of it's no longer useful and ended up in the privy to use a, t- a euphemism. <laughs> I guess you didn't put it out to the farm. I Um, mean, right? Yeah. And uh, we might have even talked about this at one point earlier on in the podcast because we had found some evidence of cows and or horses in the very first dig, most Mm -hmm. of it rotten away. And somebody, I forget who told me this, uh, quipped about how the invention of the automobile was kind of a lifesaver in cities because even in Philadelphia, where we have trolleys now, there were horse-drawn trolleys early on, and there were just horses doing all the work and lots of dying horses. And what do you do with horse bodies? Right. It's so bad they're putting their dead horses in the privy. Right. They're not even, like, taking them somewhere to process them anymore. The way, you know, <laughs> right. the knackers, as I know, because I read English children's literature when I was a kid. <laughs> so that was one thing where the automobile... Uh, really shifted things around in terms of <laughs> dying horses. Right. How many horses cities. you have around you that could drop dead or need to be killed and disposed of. Speaking of disposing of body parts. Well, we found so many of these bones that we later learned were called cannon bones. Big, chunky bones. Probably uh, cow. Probably cow. Not real clear why we have. I, I would say hundreds. Maybe not quite a hundred, but dozens. Certainly dozens. We've saved dozens, but right. we threw others down there. Melissa <laughs> kept them. I started collecting them because <laughs> the thing with cannon bones is that it's a really solid bone. So it's a metatarsal, I think. Like it's a, it's a lower leg bone of a cow. And cows being, you know, bulky creatures need a lot of strength in their lower leg bones. So the thing with these bones is they're not good for pretty much anything. They're not good for cooking because they've got no marrow in them. Mm-hmm. They're just this really thick bone. And because they're so thick and chunky, they survive really well in privy environments. So I noticed that there were a lot of these bones that were coming up that were really, really whole. And I started collecting all the whole ones. And then I was like, shit, now I have like three buckets of these bones. <laughs> and we've we've speculated about why do we have this many bones. Our friend Christine, the structural engineer, when she visited, suggested that maybe with some of the other stuff that we've found, which 
I think we talked about a little bit. If not, we will. Found a lot of tailor-related stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, some sewing material. Maybe they were using the sinews and tendons for the kinds of things that we have synthetic materials for now. But also, we found some references online to tanning and hides. And you could get cow hides for tanning that often still had the very ends of the legs attached. So imagine there's a farm that's killed a bunch of cows. They skin the cows. And just to save time, instead of stripping the hide from the legs, they just kind of include the legs with the hide and send all of that off to the tannery. So at the tannery itself, they would remove the lower legs from the hide and included with the lower legs would be these cannon bones. One possible reason that we could have a ton of cannon bones in the privy would be that there was a tannery somewhere close by And after having processed a bunch of hides, they have a huge amount of cannon bones that have come with the hides that they needed to get rid of all at once. And I'm going to put on my fake historian hat and say that there was definitely a tannery nearby because there was a stream nearby. Uh, And certainly later on, there were so many tanneries that they covered the stream. Right. It was disgusting. absolutely disgusting. A thing to understand about tanning leather (laughs) is that its main ingredient is piss. <laughs> it's such not, a foul process. Right. Not the leather itself, but to tan leather. Like, it makes me wonder about ancient humans figuring leather out. <laughs> like, what what fucking mind was like, I'm just going to keep pissing on this leather for like, you know, six weeks. Right. And then at the end of this, you have this piss-soaked leather you pick it up and go, whoa, this has totally changed the chemical structure of this leather. And now it doesn't rut. And it's like pliable and I can do all this stuff with it. But first I had to piss on it for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we have books. Humans are, are amazing <laughs> and disgusting. <laughs> okay. I still want to know what you're going to do with all those bones. I don't know. Yeah, I just um, keep them in a bucket for now because, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what use they are. Like, do I catalog them and then throw them away? Do I put them in a display in the eventual museum and say, think of the lives of the cows that lived right, on our right. land in the 18th century? I don't it's know. It's like all the skulls at the La Brea Tar Pits. Yes, that's totally what I'm thinking of. <laughs> right. At the La Brea Tar Pits in L.A., they have a wool with a ton of Timberwolf skulls. And they're like, for every Timberwolf skull you see on this wall, we've actually excavated 100 Timberwolves. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our cannon bones. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe, see, this is my clever segue, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you're going to carve some dice out of them. Ah, yes. You see, in our first sift of the privy, one of the very exciting things that we found was a die. I hate using the word, <laughs> the singular word die because English is so uncreative. We can't come up with like new sounds for things, but a singular dice. A die. As in a six-sided... Gaming implement. Gaming implement, yeah. <laughs> Carved out of bone, which is like the most rockabilly punk goth thing <laughs> I can think of. <laughs> yeah, and it's... It, obviously, it's not made from a cannon bone at all. It's made in such a way that you, you have to plug the two ends. So you take like a small hollow bone with a pretty thick wall... Mm-hmm. And you create 
like a square cylinder and you know carve four four numbers on the sides of that cylinder and then you make plugs to plug the top and the bottom of the die up uh, and then carve the last two numbers on those plugs and it's broken in the corner but we have both the plugs it's kind of amazing so yeah. the entire die is there that much. was super cool yeah another super cool thing that came out of the dig and we had actually tossed aside because it, it looked like a rock. Right. And, uh, for all the, the neat things that we found in in soft night soil, uh, it was not for a lack of horrible hard things that we had to scoop up and set aside. Yeah, it's hard to describe, like, you know, people think, oh, you have a sifter, so you just sift the dirt, and then everything that's left in the sifter is uh, an artifact. No, completely untrue. You sift the dirt... But then in the sifter, I would say it's like 80% rocks and bricks and stones and bones you can't use. And if you're lucky, in a really good hole, 20% artifacts. And that's just in the siftable buckets. While digging, we're constantly pulling up buckets just full of bricks and large stones. And they could be pieces of flagstone. They are often river pebbles. I've got a brick with mortar that clearly sat underwater for a long time. It's pebble-shaped. Right. I kept it because I'm a weirdo. Um, (laughs) It's like this Philadelphia pebble in my head. Um, And by pebble, you know, people think pebbles are are small, but pebble is essentially any sort of round river-washed stone. Right, like a a cobble, really, because this is the size of the things that they cobbled the streets with back in the day. One of these buckets came up full of cobbles and bricks and, and things like that, and... One of the things that uh, Lewis, who we talked about earlier, was doing while we were digging was forming a nice earthworks uh, with all of the dirt that we pulled up. He was building retaining walls with bricks and with stones. So he's sorting the good from the bad. And he walks up and he's got this pebble in his hand. He goes, this is an axe. Just very matter of fact. That's kind of who Lewis is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what he was talking about until he, he, he held it up and, and I, I picked it up and I could see, yeah, it had in fact been worked. There was like a, a shaped top to it. This was a motherfucking stone axe. Wow. So we're talking in all likelihood, Lenny Lenape, Native Americans, probably shaped this stone into essentially like it can be used as a hand axe but you can also see on the butt end a groove where it could potentially be fastened to some kind of handle to be used as like you know what we think of as an axe with a handle on it yeah they used this as a chopping implement or even you know it was multi-purpose you could use it as scraping implement or you know a stripping implement or all kinds of things for a period from 4,000 years ago to like 400 years ago, there's no good way for us to date when this axe was from because the stone axe making technique, I mean, they kind of perfected it thousands of years ago and mm-hmm. then kept using that technique right up until the moment when metal axes entered the scene. This is also a funny moment. So on a couple of the days at the dig, uh, one of Michael's friends, Duncan, came over and Duncan is an actual trained archaeologist um, works with Michael on I think the like the film special effects stuff that they do right he was super interested in every little fleck of flint 
every little pebble that came up. He's a rock guy. He's which, a rock you guy. know, I've like talked with other archaeologists about this. Everyone has their specialty, and some archaeologists are really into stone tools. Like that's their thing. And things would come up, and he'd see this discarded piece of flint. Oh, that that could be a micro tool. Set that aside. And everybody was giving him a hard time about this. Because <laughs> they were like. Duncan, we can't save every rock. There's like a huge pile of rocks and you're like literally picking up every rock and going, I think this was worked. It's like, I can't save all of these rocks. I'm really sorry. Now, the funny thing is, is I've caught the bug a little bit. In going back and sifting the spoil pile, I will look and see things and I don't know if it's pareidolia or what but i'm starting to see the micro tools i'm starting to see worked bits of stone in among the stuff now again the context is completely missing right it's discarded in a privy pile for all we know that axe could have even been used as cobble in the lawn or just sort of used for other things because it was discarded amongst other pebbles. Yeah, I don't know if the Philadelphians in the 18th century even recognized it as an axe or if they just picked it up and was like, oh, here's a river stone, you know. But uh, it's also partially due to completely binge watching every single online episode of Time Team (laughs) and Phil Harding. And his his love of flint tools. Okay, if you haven't watched the television show Time Team, highly recommend. It's hosted by Baldrick from Blackadder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And by far, our favorite person on the show is archaeologist Phil Harding, who is from... Wiltshire. Wiltshire. (laughs) He's got such a great accent. It's the best. (laughs) And he says things like, stone the crows. Such a character. And he's so, like, he just loves what he does. It's infectious. <laughs> he's also ridiculous about Flint. Understanding it and getting inside the head of Flint Nappers. He's an expert Flint Napper himself. This was one of the things that we did over the pandemic, mm-hmm. was watched all 20-plus seasons of Time Team, I think, twice. Imagine living <laughs> in a society that supports 20 episodes of Archeolo- 20 seasons. 20, 20 seasons. 20 seasons, two decades of television about archaeology. Yeah. Instead of getting rid of the position of city archaeologist because there isn't enough funding or they think public interest. Oh, I was going to say, instead of like, I don't know how long did Cheers run for. Cheers is not terrible. Um, (laughs) What's instead of like three and a half men. Blue bloods. uh, um, (laughs) At least somebody over there funded it and we can watch it and uh, it's wonderful it's such a good show and they're actually rebooting it via like a web series yeah uh, at the moment which i'm really excited to get back into watching so now melissa fights me over micro tools yeah i'm still a big skeptic over some of the things um (laughs) i'm just not a rock girl what can i say i don't know i'm just (laughs) like you know the stone axe is very clearly exactly what it is but i am always one of these people where you know someone presents me with a broken rock and is like i think this is a micro tool and i'm like oh it was just smashed on the roads (laughs) of philadelphia by heavy equipment and carriages that were going around and you know in the gravel it ended up in the privy like i don't think it's necessarily worked this is not an ancient site 
where the right. only reason rocks would be broken were because humans deliberately broke them. This yeah. is like urban Philadelphia with industrial things going on. So I don't know. Well, speaking of Flint, uh, we found something. <laughs> yeah. It was a little hard to figure out what it was at first because it was this corroded chunk of metal. And we started to experiment with electrolysis. Mm -hmm, for the first time. Because this piece of metal was clearly, it had a decorative element to it. It sort of looked like it had a curly spiral at the end and then some kind of clippy attachment thing at the other end. I honestly, when I saw it, I thought it was some kind of like fence hardware that I couldn't identify, like some kind of decorative iron fence hardware. I just, I had no context for it at all. Yeah. All I knew is it was decorative and kind of flat on one side. Right. So after we sat it in a solution of, um, Laundry soda? Laundry soda. I wanted to say bath salts. <laughs> <laughs> After we gave it a meth bath. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we bought like a little laptop charger with attachments and wrapped it in copper. It's a whole process that we're going to hit pretty hard this next year. We got enough of the corrosion off that it became pretty clear that it was definitely something decorative. <laughs> we still couldn't tell what it was for the longest time. It was just like... Oh, it has more definition, but I still have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> so we posted it online. And thankfully, there are people out there who spot this right away. Because as it turns out, Matt and I know jack shit about guns. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us have the faintest idea about guns at all. We've both like shot one like twice in our life and that's it. Couldn't tell you anything about them. But our friend Daryl Hazelrig, uh, who we know through the National Puppetry Conference... Matt and there's actually a very good chance that you might have seen him as this 80s heavy metal YouTube kid. Uh, he went a little bit viral a couple of years ago because he and his buddy had these home videos of like going record shopping when they've got like mullets and jean jacket. Uh, like, it's wonderful. <laughs> And he popped into the comments and immediately was like, oh, yeah, that's a flintlock, um, the cock from a flintlock pistol or rifle. It was like instant for him because yeah. he knows about guns. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and once he said that, we turned it upside down, realized we've been looking at it literally upside down. I not think helpful. No matter what way up it would have gone. No. I think it, I'm not sure under what circumstances I would have even looked at a rifle in a museum long enough to go, oh, there it is. Like, because I skip right over the rifle sections in museums. I don't care. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like me with ceramics prior to 2016. <laughs> right. <laughs> So it was no surprise when later on in sifting what we found, a little flint turned up, yeah, which, which probably went right in that cock. And that, I will accept, was very clearly worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is so clearly flint for a flintlock rifle or pistol. Like, it's kind of like a flat trapezoid shape. And, oh, another television show that I started watching recently <laughs> is this, like, late 80s, early 90s show about an antique dealer starring, fuck, what's his name? Um, the guy who said cocksucker a lot on Deadwood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Um, he. It's called Lovejoy, and it's about him as, like, this rapscallion rake-like antique dealer. And in the opening credits... 
there is a shot of a flintlock pistol firing, uh, like a close-up shot. Mm-hmm. And you can see the flint inside the cock of the pistol. And I'm like, oh my God, it's exactly the shape of the piece of flint that we found. So it's definitely... I don't know why that ended up in our privy. Like, do we think it, there was at some point a whole gun and that the rest of the gun rusted away? Entirely possible. I mean, we we weren't as careful about keeping the metal we kept like big chunks though. we kept big chunks but there's also the the way that these were made it, it's entirely possible that those bits corroded away right and the wood certainly would have yeah yeah if it didn't land in a in a like anaerobic part of the privy so or maybe this cock like fell off a pistol for some reason and they replaced it with a different one right and they just chucked it in the privy because mm. who cares i don't know it's fascinating but speaking of things that you kill people with. <laughs> <laughs> we found several cannonballs mm-hmm. and all kinds of munitions, actually. So what do we have? We have a, a six-pounder, a six-pound sphere of metal. Like, six pounds doesn't sound like a lot, but actually <laughs> it's really heavy. So it, it's basically the size and shape of a shot put. And when it came up, you know, it was in this pile of, of rocks and heavy things, and I, I picked it up. And immediately, even though it, too, was encrusted in concretions and Like, and you could other barely stuff, tell it was a sphere. Yeah, I picked it up. I'm like, oh, this is a cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We have a cannonball. And then a little while after that, this smaller one came up, which is a three-pounder, or a galloper, as they called them back then. And then we also got a couple of grape shot, like a couple of smaller pieces, which were probably wrapped up in grape shot. Mm-hmm. Um, these were all ordnance that were in use during the Revolutionary War. So it's like the correct time period for the rest of the stuff in the privy. And there's a big question, which is why would you throw cannonballs into a toilet? To which I always answer, have you ever been a 10-year-old child? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because of the sound it makes and the splashback. Yeah. Of course, somebody found, like, spare cannonballs as a kid. Yeah. It was like, throw it in the privy. I mean, when I was a kid, whenever we had dry ice, for whatever reason, I would put it in the toilet so that the toilet filled up with dry ice smoke. Is that a thing that other people did, or was that just me? We actually didn't get dry ice a whole lot. When no, it's very Which is occasional. why, as an adult, every time we get dry ice, I put it in the sink. You're like, excited. and I run hot water on it. I'm like, ah, it's the best. <laughs> All I'm saying is that I definitely understand the childish impulse to put exciting things in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's funny about this is. Like a couple of years ago now, because what is time? Mm. Uh, I saw a post on Reddit. There's a subreddit called What Is This Thing? I don't even know why I was in that subreddit. Uh, I might have been posting my own What Is This Thing? And somebody else from New Jersey posted what looked like a smashed cannonball. And that sent me down this whole rabbit hole of tracing Revolutionary War battles in New Jersey asking this person where they found it and i think i pinpointed the battle where the battle was and this was just a misfire that went off into the distance huh i don't know why it's flattened i guess it hit something it must have hit something <laughs> really heavy duty so that that was kind of neat they're around but I, i'm glad it wasn't 
There were some cannonballs in use a little later than the Revolutionary War that were hollow and yes. filled with gunpowder. And if you find one of those cannonballs, you have to be kind of careful. Because if you hit it the wrong way while you're trying to get the rust off or something, you can make it explode and lose a limb or your face or something important to you like that. So, you know. Yeah, Michael Frechette just found one of those. It looks like a cannonball, but there's a circular hole in the top, and that's where the fuse is for you know, your anarchist-style yeah. bomb is basically <sighs> what it is. And, you know, if you're out there and you, you find something like that, the advice generally is to put it in a bucket of water and call the police. Call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> they will come out and x-ray your 19th century cannonball and make sure th- that it doesn't have explosive stuff in it. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't find one of those, though, because yeah. that would have scared me a little. <laughs> Another really exciting thing, a number of these actually popped out. One of my favorite plates that we had recovered from the first dig was this scratch blue salt glaze dish. It had a floral pattern and a little machined pattern, not like like a rouletted, I think rouletted. They call it. Yeah, where you you have a little wheel with a pattern on it and you run it around the outside almost like a pie crest roller. Right, a little wheel on a stick. Yeah. And we recovered how many of these as teapots? We discovered two pretty, pretty whole, like there are some chunks missing, scratch blue teapots. One of them is a pretty typical size, and one of them is significantly bigger and may have been a like a punch pot rather than a teapot, but who knows? I mean, there's like... It's got a filter on the... That's on true. The spout. Also, people just use things for everything. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of tea. I started putting these teapots together and I was like, oh, cool. We have some more scraffito, like scratch blue teapots. That's cool. <laughs> and then I posted them online and all the people who actually know about this shit was like, whoa, those are rare. <laughs> well, we've got two of them. I know. <laughs> I didn't even know they were rare because I'm just really lucky and ditzy. <laughs> Um, but they're really nice. I like the patterns. I'm even incorporating them into some new Boghouse merch. Yeah. We will talk about that later. Later. Yeah. Another thing that we found, which I also thought was really cool, was our very first pipe that the stem was broken, but you, I found the two parts of the stem that go together. So I was able to glue the stem back together and have a whole clay pipe that I could smoke. Could so, and did. Uh, <laughs> I I asked around if anybody knew anything about how to smoke a pipe because <laughs> I don't smoke pipes. Uh, and Mikey, who took the pictures on the Boghouse website and on all of our publicity, was like, oh, yeah, actually, I have smoked a pipe. I've got some pipe tobacco. I'll lend you some and, you know, give you some tips. And so I took it out on the porch and Matt filmed me smoking this pipe. It was not... <laughs> The most pleasant experience of my life. And and not because it was a, a privy pipe. No, no. Like, the pipe itself was perfectly functional. I'm just like, that's not very pleasant. Pipe smoking is not really my jam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, you know, some people might think it looks cool. In some ways, there's something pretty cool about smoking a 200-year-old pipe or a 300-year-old pipe yeah. that you found in a privy on your property. I felt like in that moment, I communed with the people who smoked a pipe all the time because that's just how much the world stank. 
back then, <laughs> but I'm not taking up pipe smoking full time, FYI. Matt, what's like your favorite thing that we pulled out of this privy? I have a little bit of a bias. I was down in the privy for like five minutes. Oh. Stop. <laughs> Matt likes to tease me because he thinks I bogarted the privy. <laughs> kind of true. Kind of true. I had one trip down the ladder. Uh, exactly one trip down the ladder during all of the 19 feet of digging. In this privy. Michael just... went down. Lewis went down. Mostly it was Melissa. <laughs> I was trying to protect everyone from the dangerous situation of being down there. I'm like, if I died down there, I could live with that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was really cool. Uh, going down there was a pretty unique experience. And when I was down there, I pulled up first sort of a broken glass bottle and by bottle we're talking 18th century bottles these are i think we talked about the very first thing that we found in the privy was a nearly complete wine bottle from mm-hmm. the mid 18th century with cork in that one had the cork in it <laughs> the only crack was where the fucking shovels hit it <laughs> uh, it's okay it's fine it's fine it made for a pretty sweet t-shirt uh <laughs> now available at boghouse.thehanna.org We'll do a merch review later. I've had fun with that. So, going down, you find a lot of smashed bottles, and any of the glass that comes up actually tends to have what's called sickness to it. And this is where the minerals in the glass leach out and create this iridescence. And it's really kind of beautiful. The first time we saw it, like a lot of people, we assumed that it was some kind of deposit of the salts or minerals in the soil on the glass because it it's like a layer on mm-hmm. top of the glass. It'll flake away as you touch it. Right. It's hard to believe it almost. Like I, we immediately started reading up like, what is this stuff? What's happening to this glass? And it was also weird when we were first pulling this stuff out because you would wash the glass and it would look like after it was wet, it was like, oh, this is clearly brown or green or the, uh, right. kind of an amber color. And then as it dried, that iridescence, this layer would reform and right. it would become hard to see through again. It's like the sickness becomes transparent when it's wet yeah, and then becomes opaque again when it's dry. So it's like this outer layer. It's really interesting looking. And, and what was um, almost hard to believe for me was that the glass doesn't do this because it's in the privy environment. Like, it's not because the privy is dirty or full of weird chemicals or whatever. It's just the water in the privy draws these minerals out of the glass, these impurities that were already present when the glass was made. In fact, if you have a glass sitting on a shelf in a humid environment, it will develop sickness if there's impurities in the glass. Museums that specialize in glass artifacts have to get like humidity-controlled special cases mm-hmm. to try to control sickness because even on really fine glass, if there's impurities in the glass, it will cause this cloudiness over the glass that affects the look of it. And the structure. It weakens the glass. Right. As the impurities come out, it leaves hollow tiny little hollows, which is why uh, sick glass isn't shiny anymore on mm-hmm. the outside. It can, If it gets really bad, which a lot of the glass that we have is really bad, it's got a pitted kind of appearance on right. the surface. 
And sidebar, this is how Tiffany, the famous glassmaker, became famous. jewelry guy. Yeah, jewelry. Louis, is his name Louis? Louis Tiffany, I think. Louis Tiffany? I don't know. Um, I don't know anything about Lou Tiffany. Lou Tiffany. This guy saw old Roman glass and this really interesting iridescence about it and basically studied up and learned how to create that. Again, this is an impurity. This is actually a fault of poorly made glass. But it's got an interesting look. Yeah. I'm just looking him up. Did you know? Okay, first of all, wait, is he different to the jewelry guy? Oh, we're going to have to record that whole thing. (laughs) No, okay, wait, wait. Okay, I'm looking it up right now because that's the mark of a really good researcher is just Googling stuff while you do the episode. Charles Lewis Tiffany, who was the guy who created the jewelry company in the 19th century. And in that case, Lewis is spelled L-E-W-I-S. Oh. He's American. Clearly Lewis. Yes. His son, Lewis, spelled the French way, like, could be Louis. Lewis Comfort Tiffany. His middle name is Comfort. Hmm. Okay, that's bizarre. (laughs) I'm sure there's, like, a reason for it in some, you know, his mother's maiden name or something. He was... The one who created the stained glass. I actually didn't realize that they were two separate people, but it's father and son. Huh. Learning something new every day. And the American is fuck, so I assume it's Louis and not Louis. Right. Maybe Louis for short, right? All of that was important to say because, (laughs) again, every piece of glass we've pulled out of the privy has had sickness to it. Yes. uh, Some of it looks nice. Some of it's just really annoying. I'm looking at a bottle behind Melissa now that has a like a prismatic rainbow sheen to it. I think it's really great. This bottle that I pulled out, you know, I'm digging down there. It's super wet. My gloves aren't doing anything. And I'm looking for any precision digging device while I'm down there. Because I don't think we even had the spade. Or maybe we did, but I wanted to be careful. So right. I'm taking like oyster shells. They're dissolving in my hand. Uh, and... I dig enough around this bottle that I, I pull it out and it's it's all there. It's like the whole damn bottle's there. Isn't that the best so feeling? Awesome. It's the best feeling. <laughs> I almost understand bottle guys when yeah. I pull a whole bottle out of the mud. Because you go through so many you'll see part of it and you can't tell until you excavate the complete area around it whether or not it's a full bottle. There's so many false positives. So we get it up, I take it upstairs and we wash it and it dries. There's no sickness. It looks, uh, Michael described it as though it were cellar kept. Yeah. It just looks perfect. It's got the color of a bottle that has been passed down over the centuries. And it's such a nice bottle. It looks like a bottle that you would buy in Colonial Williamsburg at a tourist shop that's just a, what do you call it, a replica of Mm -hmm. of an Mm -hmm. old bottle. And it looks pretty solidly like 1760, 1770 in shape. That's the thing about bottles, at least what the uh, the experts tell us. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we have not done this research independently. <laughs> right. I, I read this in a paper that was written in like the 70s. Right. Probably written by people... Who we now... Who we now are in, in circles with. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, basically, the shape of the bottle determines the age of the bottle during right. this period of time. It kind of goes through fashions. Yeah, before everything is sort of industrialized, whatever the shape is determines what what decade it was made in. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, we have this beautiful bottle. It's like such a perfect bottle that I honestly feel 
no need to like keep looking for bo- you know what i mean like yeah, I'm, I'm i'm done right i'm like we found the perfect bottle guys we don't need any more bottles whereas bottle guys tend to be like collect all the bottles like keep searching for that high and to be fair you can sell bottles for a lot of money yeah like not so much the age bottles that we find sure like that might be three figures like very low three figures if you were to try and sell that sure which i'm uh, not yeah oh i'll I'll never sell i'll never sell family (laughs) i'm Um, gonna pass it down As, as you get into more decorative bottles or, or more rare bottles from the 19th century, like they get into the four and five figures, which mm-hmm. is bonkers to me. Yes. Um, I will say I still am pursuing bottles only in the remnants that we found because we found some bottle seals. Yes. In this privy, we found an intact wine seal. So back in the day... In the 18th century, if you were really rich, you would not only order your own wine from Europe, but you would get your own wine bottles. You would place a commission to a bottling place to make your wine bottles. And as they made them, they would put a glob of hot glass on the bottle and stamp it with your initials or your name or maybe some like crest design or like whatever it might be. I don't know, you know, some indicator that this was your wine then your wine would be shipped to you from i don't know france or whatever in your own personalized wine bottles it sounds like some it's a luxury upsell if i've ever heard one you know you know what it makes me think of it makes me think of like something you could order in like shopper image magazine (laughs) in the airplane or something you know monogrammed bottles with your name on them like who cares actually but whatever okay so the intact wine seal that we have that we found in our privy says Drum roll. GW. G-W. <laughs> okay, quick, Matt. How many people can you name in the 18th century who lived in Philadelphia and were rich enough to own their own wine bottles with their own seal on them with the initials GW? Who? Did how they have to spend you? time in Philadelphia in the 18th century? Yes, who, who do you think mm. it could be? Uh, how many mm. people can you think of? Uh, I can think of one. <laughs> I can think of one, and that person is the most important person, American Jesus. American Zeus. <laughs> American Zeus. George motherfucking Washington. Okay, it doesn't say George Washington, but can you think of anyone who fits this description? I mean, very preliminary research. I can't find anybody Yeah. in Philadelphia in that time. Now, <laughs> understandably, <laughs> not everybody who stopped by Philadelphia signed a book. <laughs> Left left their name in a register somewhere, had a tax record. I'm like, no, it's canon now. It's that's George Washington's wine seal. This is this is the benefit of being a self-described amateur archaeologist. That's right. We you can, can make total bullshit claims. Claim fucking anything. I bet if we went to Mount Vernon, we could ask someone there. There are no wine seals with George Washington at all on the internet. On the internet, like Mount Vernon has. A bunch of wine seals from Mount Vernon. Okay. And they're all sort of gifted wine, right? They're, they're oh, other people's initials. Right, because this was another thing about this custom of sealing your own wine bottles is that you would give often those bottles away to friends and the wine seal on it would sort of act as like a cod saying like, this is for me to you. It's got my name on it, which in the 21st century sounds a little weird to us. It would be like, you know, putting your initials on a scarf and giving them to your friend and being like 
<laughs> or like a locket or something and saying, here, wear my initials around your neck. But yeah, so actually that's interesting if Mount Vernon has seals from other people, but not from George Washington. Yeah, and there's so, there are so few of these in America that there's hmm. a pretty... Again, this is the the caveat being this is all internet research, so it's the right. the, the highest level of deepest research available. <laughs> um, what I found, and and I have actually used, uh, they're they're called books. Um, <laughs> Again, it's the internet printed onto pieces of paper. Yes, yes, that have tables of all of the recorded wine seals mm. that archaeologists proper archaeologists who work for institutions that actually document and record these things <laughs> have recorded and there's nobody else with with the GW. Interesting. Well, if there's like a someone who knows more than these books or the internet as it currently stands who knows anything about whether or not George Washington sealed his wine bottles and what that seal might have looked like, please get in touch with us. We would love to be told that this is not George Washington, it's um, Gordon Willis. <laughs> was Gordon even a name that was around in the 18th century? I don't even know. I'm sure the G stands for George. Like, how many G names are there? It's kind of an important name back then. There, there's there, You're right. Everyone's called George because as we've gone over time and time again, these people are like the least creative namers of children and places, you know, you can imagine. Which I kind of respect now. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, if I'm just saying, if also if you have other good candidates for rich white men in Philadelphia with the initials GW who you think that this wine seal could belong to, because if it's not George Washington, I would love to have a list of candidates of who do we think this mm-hmm. could be and see if I can find any information about, like, did they know? I mean, everyone knew everyone, but, like, were they buds with... Daniel Williams or Benjamin Mifflin or Henry Van Horn or, Mm -hmm. you know, any of the families around here, just to see if I could narrow the possibilities. And if by 2032, nobody comes up with anything, then it's fucking George. It's canon. It's George Washington. It's totally George Washington. I'm going to pull the Zahi Hawass thing. I'm going (laughs) to put my hat on. Say, George Washington stayed in this building. We have proof. He drank this wine and then he smashed the bottle on his fucking head and he threw it into the toilet because he was so drunk. And then he, <laughs> he saved the children. That's right. But then he not saved the British children. George Washington. <laughs> Washington. Washington. Okay. So we have just talked for a really long time about all of these artifacts that came up in the first sift of this privy. We thought we were going to get through everything we needed to talk about in one episode, but it turns out this privy was so fucking exciting and full of stuff that we're so excited about that we're actually going to bump the news of the things that we found in the second sift, which is when we re-sifted all of the dirt that we pulled out of the privy with quarter-inch grid sifters instead of half-inch. We're going to talk about that in the next episode. So coming up... Colin aware. What does that even mean? More Native American artifacts. Coins and other things with dates on them. And, of course, the ever-elusive Bonin and Morris. I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. 
Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.